0: This meeting is being recorded.
1: Can everyone see my screen? Can everyone hear me? Lily, you're muted! We can't hear
2: you! Oh, sorry! Can everyone hear me now? Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Politics Under the Microscope. We are here today with Freed Harb, who is a graduate student at Rockefeller University, currently and recently defended. We are also here with Caitlin Gilbert, PhD, who just finished her doctorate at Rockefeller and has now entered the workforce working as a journalist. Today, we'll be recapping our mental health episode series and discuss from a graduate student's perspective, especially graduate students that have just graduated, what it's like to go through and experience mental health challenges that often plague the graduate student population and how they've managed their stress as well. And so Caitlin, would you like to get us started?
0: Um, Sure. So hi, everyone, I'm Caitlin. Um, I, uh, as I just said, just finished up my PhD, um, was about six years, almost on the dot. Um, And I studied um, in the Jarvis Lab working on song um, and speech acquisition, Um, so broadly neuroscience, a little bit of genomics and things like that too. Um, And I I have now fully left academia, and so I am actually in journalism now, i um, a data visualization journalist with the Financial Times uh, full time. Um, and yeah, uh, I guess just a bit on me, I guess many parts of grad school were very tough and uh, stressful for me, um, dealt with everything from maybe more standard and common anxiety and stress from uh, just day-to-day existing as a grad student. I think a lot of things, On that level were normalized which maybe elsewhere were more serious issues um all the way to pretty severe depression um and a couple times suicidal thoughts so yeah the full gamut of mental health experiences i think um also some good times so i don't want to be like every single day was the biggest battle of my life so it was a big roller coaster i think um throughout grad school so yeah i'll I'll stop there let farid go
3: Okay. Uh, hey, everyone. My name is Fareed. I am a MD-PhD student in the Frywald Lab, the Laboratory of Neural Systems here at Rockefeller. I study social cognition in non-human primates, so rhesus macaques. I do electrophysiology, uh, where I record from neurons while the macaques are watching different types of stimuli, either containing or not containing social uh, other monkeys, socializing, like chasing each other, grooming versus controls where they're not doing that. Um, In terms of mental health problems, I've also experienced like a range of things, um, predominantly anxiety. And I, I, due, due to due to the way I was raised, I basically never go to hospitals. So I don't, I am not.
2: Aren't you an MD PhD student?
3: Yeah, I still avoid them. Gotcha. A lot of physicians don't go to the hospital, ironically, except for to work. They don't they don't see physicians themselves. Um, So, yeah, uh, generalized anxiety, a lot of things related to transitioning to a completely new field for grad school and being in an environment where not a lot of guidance or mentorship was provided, you know, feeling like I'm working 24 seven, experiencing profound burnout and not making progress on top of that. You know, the dichotomy is. Some people say you can work a ton and and uh, and do do science, or you could work less time and do less science, but be happy. And I'm like, oh well, I work a lot and I don't do much science on top of that. So, so the best of both worlds on that front. Um, yeah, uh, a lot of the time I've spent. Sort of reflecting on what what are the factors for that? Like, why do I feel this way? Why is it so common for people in graduate school to feel this way? And what things could change to, to alleviate these things, because ultimately, we're putting like, a lot of the, you know, smartest, hardest working people through the worst conditions. It's a waste of, of human potential in at, at a factory scale. And It's the reason I've been involved with this podcast series, and I'm excited to share more about that.
2: Yes, absolutely. So it sounds like you guys have gone through experiences that may be applicable to a lot of other graduate students. But I think what may differ is how those mental health challenges were triggered. Did you guys notice, for example, what things may have happened in science or in lab or throughout your PhD journey that particularly triggered these feelings of anxiety or feelings of depression?
0: Yeah, so I think um, there's a lot of um, normalization um, for pretty much all experiences within academia, especially if you're only talking to other people who are inside this the same bubble as you, be it in the same lab or institution. And so, I, I don't think I actually noticed anything was wrong until talking to people that were outside of um, outside of the lab. So, like, I come from a group of family and friends that have absolutely nothing to do with science. And so I felt like probably starting in like my second year, early third year of my PhD, um, I was working kind of all the time on a project that I had zero support on. And I sort of was in my head thinking, oh, well, this is just what grad school is. Like I shouldn't complain. Like I shouldn't worry about it. Um, And I was talking to uh, friends who are not in lab and they're like, you don't seem well, you know, you don't see, you don't seem like you're having a good time. Um, Like, what's up with that? And I, there, there was probably like at least a year or so of time where I was just like, well, this is just the way it is. Um, And so I think, yeah, the product of the culture of a lab, um, lack of support systems within a lab and institution, like all those things kind of can come together and at very specific times. So like, you know, they're critical moments in the Just like any grad program where you know you're defending your um not not just you're like choosing a lab you're you're choosing um the project you're going to work on so like at at all these junctures there's like a lot of weight put on those you know moments um and those moments also tend to be the times where you really need a lot of support and it's often missing um so yeah i think at the time i kind of didn't really know what was happening it was really Maybe more when it got really extreme and other people had to tell me, like, oh, you're not doing great. (laughs) You should should check on this. Um, But even then, I felt like, you know, I was making excuses or trying to justify um, what everyone else, else was telling me was totally normal.
2: So a lot of times, scientists, especially scientists in training, justify or rationalize their challenging experiences and the mental health challenges that come with it by saying that science is inherently difficult. And so that being said, can you elaborate on whether or not you guys think that the mental health crisis in graduate school is simply because science is inherently challenging or because at an institutional or systemic level, there is a lack of support to get us through the difficulties of science?
3: Oh, I I 100% the second one. There's there's the world is filled with difficult things. Science is not the only hard thing people do. Uh, Caitlin's in a totally new world in the journalism world, putting together a newspaper or a publication of any variant that takes so many people coordinating their time and effort that gets done right. And I'm and and I can't help but imagine that the mental health issues in those circumstances are not at the you know frequency or scale, though I, I do have some big notion that in the publishing world with deadlines being what they are, sometimes there's crunch and things get bad, but they're not, they're not, um, they're not intrinsic to the event or the, to the pursuit itself, but to the structure around the pursuit. I think when it comes to science, it's a, it's a systemic problem because not only are students often left with little support and little guidance for what needs to be done or the training to actually learn how to navigate that space. Um, PIs themselves are selected based on the ability to get either, you know, a handful of of good papers or one big flashy paper. And people with no managerial skills are suddenly put in charge of two to five to 10 plus people over the course of a few years. And there's never really any feedback and the pressures on them are so high that ultimately, as long as the whole show doesn't fall apart. Uh, it keeps going exactly the way it's it's gone from the start. And a lot of them don't really evolve their managerial skills over time. And it's understandable why, but that puts a, a big strain on on the trainees in their labs. Ultimately, when a PI doesn't know how to manage teams of people or individual projects, a lot of responsibility falls on that individual. And many of us come from environments where if a responsibility is put on our head. We're like, oh, okay, we trust this, this person who's who's working above us, that they're putting this responsibility on us because we can handle it. So if a PI places a big responsibility on us, we assume we can handle it. And we assume we have the skills or that we've led them to believe we have the skills. And if we don't rise to meet that challenge, which in many instances is perfectly reasonable because there's tons of protocol, there's tons of back knowledge that we don't have, Analyses we don't know how to perform, literature we're not familiar with, we we get this crippling sense of, oh, I've deceived everyone around me into thinking I'm some sort of expert when I'm not. You know, I even, when I joined the lab, explicitly told my PI, I'm from a world, uh, a completely different domain of science, but this kind of work really interests me. If I join this lab, do you think I'll have the, the environment to grow and to eventually succeed at this? And they said yes. Uh, ultimately, it became like a sink or swim thing. I didn't know that was the that was the training environment was, here's a large pool, hope you don't drown. But that's sort of what it ended up being.
2: Caitlin, what are your thoughts on this? And also because Fareed mentioned how other places like in the journalism field, there may be support systems in place. Can you elaborate on what support systems are in place to perhaps help you in your pursuit of journalism or journalistic endeavors?
0: Yeah, just to We'll add one thing off of because I really like what, what Fried said about essentially, like, you know, PIs are there's no um, threshold of managerial skill you need to, you know, bypass to become a PI. It's just kind of like if you happen to have good people skills, be a good manager, then it's self-selecting and then that's great. But that's very much the exception to the norm. Um I think the main difference I've experienced between and it was like night and day when I moved from um academia into uh, a a role in journalism, which I will say has its own share of stuff. But the main number one thing I noticed almost like on day one, which was kind of shocking, was um, there was like immediately like three people that were like, all right, I'm going to be your point person for this thing. I'm going to if you have an issue, you go to this person if you and this is like not I don't think this is unique to journalism. This is like pretty much most like corporate any kind of like real job there's infrastructure in place like human resources and um, like a manager pipeline you set goals like all these things that are like very generic like kind of just job words like don't exist in academia in a structured way unfortunately um you know a pi might instill some measures like these things like oh we're gonna check in and see your progress on something but there's never any system of um uh, accountability or, you know, formalized growth uh, metrics of any kind. So I think the problem with most labs um, that deal with issues with where the structure really doesn't exist um, is that you have this sort of like institutionalized trauma that just continues over time. Um, PIs caught up in a system um, where that's the norm, right? Like they either struggle a lot or deal with all kinds of stuff. And they're like, well, I'm a PI now, so my lab will have the same sort of stuff and that's just the way it is. And there's no like external system outside of the lab, let alone internally to be like, you know, that's maybe not the best way to (laughs) to handle things. Um, I really do think like most of the kind of extreme issues, with academia, is that there really is no um, formal accountability system, uh, especially on the PI level? I'm not talking about even like tenure or anything, but PIs are kind of like untouchable in many institutions. Um, and so, as the people who hold essentially all the power in a in a system, like a lab or in a in an institution um, in general. Like, nothing will change, right? So, and in and in really corporate setting, and in, in my experience in journalism too, like, there are direct consequences if, the, if their employees fail. Whereas that's just not, that just doesn't exist in academia. If students fail, if postdocs fail, you know, maybe someone will say something about you. But so long as the lab is putting out papers, um, able to get funding, you know, everything else is collateral.
1: Caitlyn and thank you guys so much for everything you've shared with us so far. So kind of switching gears because we've heard quite a bit about what you guys have been through and naturally, you know, we feel a lot of empathy for everything that you've felt and we don't want anybody else to obviously feel that way and to have better support systems. So as a really broad approach, there are always policy approaches and we know those aren't always perfect and they kind of come down to states, institutions, etc. Um, But during the pandemic, the House actually passed H.R. 721, and that's the um, Mental Mental Health Services for Students Act of 2021. So basically, it's like sort of creating better outreach, better mental health services for students in schools. Naturally, this is like for school aged children, so people under 18. Um, And the amazing thing about this bill is that it provides resources and support for adolescents, you know, at a level which targets systemic and individual causes of duress, because we've talked about both of those grad school and undergrad are obviously totally different and I do think that maybe there's not as much oversight as there could be at the graduate level because maybe not as many people attend that right everybody has to attend fifth grade 10th grade whatever Um, so how do we need to reevaluate and assess our current structures at the upper educational level to reflect the systemic element of this issue because you guys have talked quite a bit about that so far
3: I saw something very insightful recently on Twitter, where it was tying basically the climate crisis to saying like this will continue until there is a cost to polluting. As long as polluting's free, nobody's going to stop doing it. Um, I think something similar needs to go on in in NIH funding when it comes to mentorship. Obviously, the implement you know the devil's in the details for this, but you can you can have an endocrinologist on every corner. If every other corner has a McDonald's on it, you, those physicians aren't going to stop the diabetes. Like ultimately we can have all the mental health services available to graduate students as much as we want. But if the, if the system that's generating those problems is still in place, then we're just gonna, it's, it's a bandaid, right? It's, it's like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We shouldn't be focused on curing these things. Obviously, people with the problems need, you know, cures are good. But at a systemic level, relying on cure is a bad move. Preventative health is far better. So if I had to propose something, it would be tying some method of getting a read on how labs treat their people. Are they going on to the next stage of the career that they're looking to get when they initially come in? Are they you know, regularly feeling like they're they're doing well. I can't imagine what the system would look like because obviously, you know, having students directly write things would be problematic because PIs might retaliate if they write bad things, ironically. Um, But yeah, ultimately, it needs to be tied to funding. You know, ultimately, government employees are public servants and PIs who get tons of NIH money should more see themselves as shepherds of that money and public servants who are who are using those funds to help solve public problems. Um, and one of the roles needs to be to train subsequent generations um, of scientists. So until there is some tracking for how PIs are treating students and consequences for those treatments being bad, also at the postdoc level, either at the institution, where if many students are... Are uh, reporting problems to the dean's office, for instance. Maybe a PI doesn't need to have graduate students anymore for fellowships. If if a institution is not is not sending graduate students to a lab, then maybe that should be a sign that institutions shouldn't be giving that lab more funding. Um, there are, there are things, but ultimately, at the end of the day, there needs to be a feedback mechanism. Like Caitlin mentioned, these systems rely on feedback. But yeah, ultimately, there needs to be consequences and rewards for behaving correctly or poorly.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think um, tying funding to like true measures of um, mentees' uh, well-being beyond, you know, what API writes about their mentorship, which I think is hilarious. You know, I think HHMI actually has tried to to do some work in this, at least on paper being like, hey, like if you want to have HHMI funding, like tell us about what you're doing as a mentor and like what you're doing for outreach, which I always find great because that's always the window of time where after five years of being in a lab, I suddenly hear from my PI asking about what I want to do um, after I leave. So, um, I'm I'm glad HHMI is is making that a conversation that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, I also think, like, there's this other weird thing in grad school. I know Rockefeller deals with it in a kind of unique way, but this line between treating grad students as students versus employees and kind of an institution choosing one or the other depending on their personal um, financial um, incentives. (laughs) Um, Like, hey, like, they're a student today, if we can get this tax break or their employee tomorrow if we can make them work more you know i can go on about that divide but um some sort of like standardized and systemic um protections for grad students as a group of people because it's really haphazard right now um i know this is tied to like immigration stuff as well too um the past few years has been pretty pretty messy with that um but yeah, grad students in particular, I think they often sort of get recategorized depending on um, the powers that be's, you know, personal preferences. Um, so classing them as a, as a protected group of, uh, you know, individuals that all are experiencing very similar problems is part of actually establishing policy to to create this infrastructure.
2: I've actually been wanting to talk about this employee thing because obviously I don't know if this is true for all graduate schools but at least the ones that I'm familiar with, our stipend is taxable income. It is not a scholarship, it is not tax exempt. And so we are essentially taxed like we are employees. And so I think because we are taxed like employees, if we're treated as such, we should have an HR department. You know, we should have more of those structures in place that help employees in an actual workplace. If you're going to tax us like that, I feel like it's an important point or instead don't tax us and actually treat us like students. I feel like it can go both ways and it can benefit us if we actually frame it in that context. But go ahead, Fareed.
3: Um, One other thing at the systemic level, I think, is when it comes to graduate students, we are exceptionally tied to our labs in ways that few other employees of any variant are. So if you're in a lab and you spent, let's say, three or four years there, if you want to leave, in a lot of ways, you don't have anything to show for it as an employee somewhere else, if you work at, at a job for three or four years and the job is bad, it's perfectly normal to leave. And you've been paid, you have maybe a letter of reference, etc. But in graduate school, you are as, as soon as you begin, you have to make that choice of, okay, things have gotten bad. Have they gotten so bad that I'm willing to throw out the last two or three years of my life? Can I just tolerate it? I think a lot of instances of abuse stem from the unsavory alternatives, right? As graduate students, once we're in somebody's lab, it's a tremendous sunk cost to leave the lab. And on top of the scientific side of things, oftentimes the major contributor to where we can go next is the PI themselves, right? They have to write you a letter of recommendation. So it sets up a system where this PI has total and unmitigated power over over your destiny, basically for the the next couple of years. And if you stay in academia for longer still, because oftentimes you need to go back to them for letters of recommendation. So this also, I think, ties into these systematic problems where the the power imbalance is is very dramatic between um, a PI and their students and trainees.
1: I think that's a particularly serious challenge, of course, and maybe something that we have to evaluate as we look at academia. But I appreciate both of you, of course, we all do for your perspectives on this, because it is a pretty serious problem. It's pretty extensive. And there need to be more people who really discuss it, talking about these challenges, talking about the fact that it's okay to be anxious if you're going into lab, or why are you anxious? How do we get to the bottom of that? Is it individual? Is it systemic? How do we actually target both of these things in a way that we don't have more kids leaving grad school that we have more people who are energized and excited especially about pursuing PhDs in science and they don't pursue them with this fear that i'm going to hate it by the time i finish it right you know i Personally, I think it really changes your opinion. If you hate something the entire time you're studying it and then you make it to the end, right? You have this jaded opinion of it and we don't want more of those. We want more scientists. We want to see more people, frankly, who are healthy, happy scientists in society. We don't want people saying, I had to endure this. You need to endure it too, right? We really need to get to the root of that. And it's not always individual. Sometimes it is systemic or vice versa. So thank you guys so much for all that you've shared with us. And, you know, hopefully we can see some things change, maybe at a more localized level, school to school, maybe we can see things change in terms of legislation or at least given legislation that we can sort of use as a baseline to modify other places.
2: Yeah, I think that this was a really great discussion. I think one final question to end this episode on is really what advice do you have for current graduate students who may be experiencing the challenges that you guys have gone through? What can students like us really do to manage our stress or to actually enact change? Um, I think it
0: does depend on your institution and like what already exists there. Um, I know outside of Rockefeller, I've had, I've had friends who, um, you know, there's there's power in numbers. And so as a community, like students can come together and advocate for um, what they deserve. <laughs> um, so whether whether or not that's like full-on unionization or it's literally just like, I know at Rockefeller, there was a big effort done just to have a um, sexual harassment survey done. So I'm like 100% supportive of advocacy, but there is power in numbers.
3: I uh, 100% agree with everything Caitlin said. Um, In addition to some of the things about how to stay well, uh, as an individual, I would say look to people who have been through the experience you're going through and talk to them and Realize that you're not alone. I think that's what a lot of things boil down to is the catastrophic thinking that starts to brew in our heads is like we're uniquely dumb or ill positioned or anything like that. And the truth is, whatever we're experiencing, others have experienced it and they can help us through it or at least shine a light on the path that we're heading down. Um, there's also I'm, I'm sort of a like junkie for internet advice so one company that produces things that's specifically related to grad school is this site called I thinkwell.com.au um, it's they sell a series of PDFs that you discusses basically how to stel- stay well in graduate school and there's some clear and obvious advice like, staying well physically, having a life outside of school, but also other things that you wouldn't think about, like how to properly manage your advisor. Most people think that's a, you know, your, your manager manages you, but oftentimes there's a bottom-up managing that can also really help, um, help smooth your journey through grad school. So ultimately, outside of that, also, if you decide to stay in academia, remember the difficulties you experienced and try not to incur them onto other people. Sometimes it's so easy for people who have wrongs done to them to perpetuate those wrongs to other people. And I think one of the things that's going to be central to breaking that cycle is just really reminding people of their own experiences and asking themselves if they want to be part of the change, they need to turn that around explicitly and and intentionally.
0: I would also just very quickly add that if your um, institution does not already offer therapy or some sort of counseling services that's like in my opinion bare minimum that a school should offer not none of this like mindfulness nonsense like oh we're gonna have a session where we talk about feeling better you know like I've I've seen PIs PIs say that and like tell students like oh you need to just change your perspective as a replacement for dealing with very serious mental health issues which I find Hilarious, but also deeply upsetting. It's a common corporate thing too, where people are like, "Well, we're going to offer mindfulness seminars, whatever, and like it's yoga, all dog
3: petting, Exactly. Et
2: Don't forget about meditation.
0: Yeah, um, all all the fun things that are ways institutions get around serious, you know, therapy and counseling services.
2: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Farida and Caitlin. Everything that you guys have provided so far, all of these insights are so valuable, especially for graduate students that are just starting out and are just starting to experience these very challenging times in their mental health. Thank you both so much for your time. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to this episode of Politics Under the Microscope. Nina, you've disabled screen sharing. Hey, I just made you (sighs)
1: co-host. I'm sorry, can everyone go on mute? I think someone's stuck in the waiting room.
0: (sighs) You're breaking up again, Ellie.
3: The recording has stopped.
1: Politics Under the Microscope would like to thank Science Education and Policy Association for their support.